Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending December 3. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, uh, you'll hear about my terrible, terrible weekend and Bobby's pretty good weekend. And also, uh, we are joined by Robin and Nia to talk about her gorgeous book, Adrift in Melbourne, Seven Walks. A lot of inspiration for getting out into the city again. We spent a bit of time discussing the quantity of chocolate on Sundays and how I spent $28 on a bucket of Froyo. Uh, Ryan Ritchie gives us a scoop on the 2022 Monofoma lineup. And Vanessa Taholka talks phone spam, how it got so bad and what you can do about it. Michael Harden for Food Interlude brings us up to speed on the hummus wars. Uh, we go through the rigmarole of making new friends and reviewing screen stuff. Hayley Inch introduces to Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Yesterday was such a perfect day. I think it was like 22 degrees, sunny. Uh, I went down uh, to my local cricket club. They were playing a home game. So it was uh, one of the first home games of the year. I met a friend there and it was just uh, like they play um, like at Aberfeldy Park. So it's many parks across from a river. It's just really picturesque. And we went there with our dogs and, and sat with a picnic rug under the shade and we were there for a couple of hours but it was one of those things where cricket's there but I have no idea what happened in the game. Like we just had such a fun social time mm. sitting there. It's like going to a gig but you don't want to admit that you haven't paid attention <laughs> to the band. Yes. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. Um, yeah. And so we were sitting there for a, a little while and then I went up to the to the club rooms because oh, I think Abby said, she's like, what's the score? I was like, oh, God, I've got no idea. There was a scoreboard, but we couldn't see it. Uh, I go, I'll go and check and I'll get us a couple of drinks. So I went up to uh, the clubhouse and then I had a look at the score, but got a couple of beers and then was chatting to, we've got all these uh, life members. They're aged between 70 and 80 and there's about between six to 10 of them and they come to all the home games and they sit up on the balcony and they drink their red wine or their light beers. And, and I got distracted and I was chatting to them for about 15 minutes. I came back down and they're like, what's the score? I was like, I have absolutely no idea. But I saw JJ and Ray Ray and Guinea and all that, yeah. so that was nice. You brought back the beers, though. I brought back the beers. That's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, so we were there. it was a beautiful day. And I, I spoke to my dad afterwards and I said, hey, we're at the cricket. And he said, oh, who won? I said, I have no idea. But, um, yeah, we were at the cricket. But like you said, it was just one of those things where you're there. And that was in the background. It was just mm. everything else. It was enjoyable. The sun, the picnic, like the dogs playing and, and catching up with people that was I think the highlight of the day can I just tell you how much I tried to have a good day yesterday it was annoyed me because I saw people like you in the streets everyone was happy everyone it was glorious perfect weather sunny just a little bit of wind and people kept posting on social media if you're not finding a vibe today or you're not enjoying (laughs) there's something wrong with you and so Andrew yeah so Andrew and I got up and went beautiful day I'd taken June to the park early Thought, let's go to the Collingwood Children's Farm. Oh, nice. Haven't been there. Uh, I haven't taken June there and couldn't go to the zoo because it had been booked out, which we knew might happen. So we thought we'll take a crossing town, a bit of a risk in the traffic, all of that, but thought, no, we'll embrace it. On the way there, we had to stop because Andrew was hungry. Fine. Got some food. Had to stop for petrol when I realised that the tank was empty. Got stuck in a bit of traffic. Took us about 45, 50 minutes. Oh, wow. You've got a young kid, you know that like too much time in the car is draining. So I'm already a bit drained. Get there, car park's full. 
do a few laps, get cut off by a BMW, nothing wrong with that, just saying that it happened to be a car that cut me off, <laughs> to get into a car park that was the only car park that was near there, uh, end up having to park quite a fair distance away. By this point, we're probably low-key shitty at one another, yeah. but you're just trying to keep it together because it's sunny yes. and everyone's drinking cocktails on the street. Yeah. I just wish I'd gone out with friends and drunk cocktails on the street mm. and walk how's this go walk all the way it's hot like we can't we didn't bring the pram we get to collingwood children's farm and this is not a slight on any people running their businesses very well and effectively under a lot of pressure at the moment but we go in we go to go in go to buy tickets they say great's got to check your certificates go no worries pull out my certificate turn around and andrew's like yeah i forgot my phone And that moment you have and there's like a line full of people and like you could see on his face he's about to like it's too far but he's got June strapped to him so he can't he can't like kick a tree because he's so angry at himself (laughs) and I can't yell at him because he's got a child strapped to him and also I don't want to make that and I said to the lady you know we're definitely both vaccinated. We're not. This isn't a scam, but obviously they have to do their job. And yeah. this is not a slide on them. Good on them because it's tough circumstances at the moment. And um, I was like, no, nah, don't worry about it. And they were nice. They're like, oh, maybe next time take a photo of each other's certificate. So then you always oh, have, which I thought was a good idea. Mm. But then we go, oh, we'll go around the corner. Let's just, well, then I thought maybe we could just see some animals over the fence. Couldn't see any animals over the fence. So then we thought, oh, we'll just go and sit in Abbotsford Convent. And then, of course, I forgot that you'd need to check in there as well. So we couldn't get in there. And I just think Andrew was feeling really guilty by this stage because what are the chances of you forgetting your phone? And we're about an hour and a half to two hours into us trying to have a nice day and have just gone, I can't, like, I, 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 this is just a disaster. So then we kind of waddle <laughs> to Victoria Park and end up sitting under a goddamn shrub, like a shrub on the edge of Victoria Park because we're just looking for some grass to sit on and have a really silent lunch. <laughs> With June on a on a, June. and oh, then wow. I know it was so silent. And then we and then we go okay, like let's just pack it in. We've tried our hardest yeah. to have our best day possible here. Um, let's pack it in. We'll get June home for her nap and um, just like just just Cold admit it. defeat a little bit, yeah, but like yeah. we've tried our best. And then on the way home, we turn to go up to um, St George's Road and all the traffic on St George's Road is being redirected into a side street. So we end up in this tra- traffic jam for 35 minutes. That's that's like every bit of traffic that would be wanting. Like, that's a lot of traffic. Yeah. And yeah. just in like silence, like this like terrifying <laughs> silence, which eventually is replaced by the wiggles <clears throat> to oh, stop no. our overtired child screaming. And it's just us in silence with the wiggles. <laughs> anyway. Gee. That was my day. That was your and, yesterday. And you know what killed me? I then did made the mistake of going on social media uh, and scrolling to see how much joy yeah, everyone was having. Everyone. everyone was at bars and at gigs and, and at drinking. There's, there's Ray Ray and JJ saying, Bobby just got his beer. Triple <laughs> <laughs> R. Robin Anir is the author of six books of history, including Bear Brass, Imagining Early Melbourne, Nothing But Gold, The Diggers of 1852, and A City Lost and Found. Her latest is adrift in Melbourne. And to tell us about it, the writer and historian joins us now. Robin, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Um, As Melbourne opens up again and we're encouraged to head into the city, tell us about these seven walks you've put together. 
Well, they all thread through the CBD of Melbourne, with the exception of one out Vic Market Way, and they explore, you know, they explore the, the back streets and what really happened there, as well as the main streets. And mostly, they're about things that are no longer there. So that's kind of good because so much has, so many familiar landmarks have disappeared during COVID. Anyway, uh, as far as you know, our favourite shops, cafes, and all that kind of stuff. So um, you know, it's, you're encouraged to use your imagination and reinvent the city for yourself as you walk around. Mm. And yet you say nothing's ever really gone. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, uh, so long as we remember things, um, you know, we just carry them in. We don't even have to have pockets. That's the great thing if you're a girl. Um, uh, uh, you, you carry it with you always. It's uh, it's always there. And you, you revisit, you walk down that street and, and the things that are gone are, are, are never gone. Yeah. And um, tell us about... Uh your favourite chapter in Melbourne history? Like, there must be something where if you had a, you know, not a magic wand or a time machine, but if... That yeah, you, I have a time machine. I've it, got one in my shed. <laughs> that, you're, that you're super fond of. I mean, I, I think of the, the fashion, you know, and you talk about the fashion and the, the garment. Like, is there anything that Melbourne's missing that you would like to see us bring back? Oh well, I mean yes. I'd love to see uh, I'd love to see Cole's Book Arcade back, with it was there from the uh, 1870s through to the uh, 1920s, I suppose, and was a big feature of what's now the Burke Street Mall. But it went through two city blocks, and it was one of the biggest bookshops in the world. But it wasn't just a bookshop; it was like yeah, it was practically a freak show and a um, and a co- an all day concert and and you name it. And the the the, uh, the dis- most distinctive feature of it was the sign. It's it's trademark sign. Uh, read the books. Nobody made to buy um, and so you could just sit there all day and listen to the music um, and uh, play with the monkeys and uh, and read the books and I just love to love to be there to walk through Cole's Book Arcade. Yeah, is it wife I think was really into spiritualism can you talk about the role of spiritualism in Melbourne? <laughs> well the role of spiritualism everywhere was uh, particularly in the 19th century which is my you know favourite century um, was was everywhere but Melbourne you know in the 1850s in that sort of gold rush decade where we had you know a big flood of people coming in from all over from Europe um, and from Britain uh, they br- very much brought, brought uh, the trend for spiritualism with them and particularly in the t- in that first decade when medicine hadn't been completely nailed down as being medicine as you know as it as it's taught in the books but was very much homeopathy and uh, uh, clairvoyant medicine and you name it. Uh, this and spiritualism went hand in hand. So up the top end of Collins Street, which was very much the medical end and kind of still is, um, you'd find, uh, you know, the, the guy who was a, a homeopathic doctor by day would have uh, a spiritual spiritualist circle by night. And, you know, the most respectable people in Melbourne uh, were involved in those. Alfred Deakin, who went on to be uh, the second Prime Minister of Australia and is, you know, the sort of leading line in Australian political history was uh, was kind of raised in that uh, spiritualist atmosphere yeah. of the 1850s, yeah. What about um, pubs? Melbourne's, you know, known for its <laughs> pubs. Are we still there or did, was it out of control back in the day? Well, it was out of control back in the day, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see how it's come back. And we've got little, we've got bars and things tucked back, uh, t- tucked in um, in laneways and things again, which is great because we'd lost that that sort of back street feel for a long time during the 20th century. But in the 19th century, there was a pub on the corner, not just of every street, the corner of every lane, and uh, it was out of control. I mean, the place was. 
it was wild and it was it was violent and particularly the, for the people who lived in those same streets with the pub next door it was with nothing with nothing on tv there was not much to do but drink. So, um, uh, yeah, when women got the vote in, uh, in Victoria in 1908, one of the first things that happened was the what they called the Licenses Reduction Board, which <laughs> which meant that uh, an assessment was made of how many hotels any district really needed and, uh, and um, a lot fewer were needed than, than what we had. So um, many closed down then. And, and, and then there was this great sort of drought of the 20th century where the pubs closed at 6 o'clock and, you know, it was like a morgue of a night and all that kind of thing. So, you know, we're somewhere in between now, which I think is healthy. Mm. Can you tell us about this enormous urinal? so it's a five-story urinal i gotta say i haven't actually been in it so i think maybe you can sit down as well um and it's uh it's it's it sounds weird you've really got to clap eyes on it it's it's uh it's made of corrugated iron and it's kind of stuck on the side of a building it's at the rear of the rialto building which faces which is a grand uh land boom era uh building from the 19th century which faces onto collins street down uh, near the king street corner and at the back of it in Flinders Lane is this strange excrescence uh, on the on the back of the building, which actually saved this rear facade of the building from demolition because this toilet, this five-storey toilet, was uh, considered so significant. So it it serviced uh, five different levels of the Rialto, and. Uh, yeah, it's just this weird kind of shingle on the back. But it's 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 even though it's made of corrugated iron and it's very workaday, they've put it, it, they decorated it with a bit of iron lace and uh, and uh, mimicked some of the decorative features uh, on the main building itself. But yeah, it's it's weird. But it's also it was also one of those earl- earliest kind of working heritage kind of sites, mm. and it still survives. Yeah. What do you think is an underutilized part of the city? Ah. Uh, I would say just the West End in general. It's not really underutilised. Lots of people... So down towards Spencer Street Station, certainly lots of people work there and increasingly live there, but it's not seen as uh, as, as a part of Melbourne where things happen. So, you know, it's not like the theatre district or really a shopping district or whatever. But it is... It's always been, to me, one of the most interesting parts of Melbourne, um, Melbourne to explore. And certainly, you know, there's plenty of uh, aforesaid bars and great little cafes and stuff tucked away. Way there, but but just as far as things to see and things to put your imagination and memory to work on, the, it's just rich. So yeah, the West End. We love naming our cities, like whether we're the education estate or the garden state or whatever it might be. If just taking in everything you've taken in about Melbourne over its history, what what do you think Melbourne is as a city that's been consistent over time? Uh, that it's not Sydney. <laughs> I like that. That is it. That's that is my slogan for Melbourne. It's not Sydney, <laughs> uh, and that has that has absolutely been. I mean, Melbourne has self-consciously identified itself that way from the word go because Sydney was such a hated opposite. Uh, you know, in the first place, we were administered as part of the uh, state of New South, uh, the, the colony of New South Wales. When the first land sales uh, happened in Melbourne, uh, the profits uh, from those government land sales went back to Sydney and were kind of handed out to us in dribs and dribs, you know, back to Melbourne in dribs and drabs. And, and uh, you know, when that separation from New South Wales happened in 1851, it was so glorious and you know I still feel the reverberations of that so it's not that I hate Sydney it's just it is such a great way to say that's what Melbourne is. Mm. Well so these seven walks uh, how long do they take do you reckon? I mean I I know how long is a piece of string but uh, in a mobility sense as well. 
Um, well, some of them go the full length of the city, almost from uh, almost from Spring Street all the way down to uh, to the edges of Docklands, um, and others others are quite short. So some of them might take you you know 90 minutes or so, mm. uh, and others might take you just you know 30 or 40 minutes, um, but. I think I think these walks. A lot of people are going to do these walks, if you like, in their heads from the from the comfort of their armchairs or banana lounge, yeah. uh, and then kind of take the best of those memories with them um, with them into the city. So I, I, you know, I I can see the book being used two ways, and but more so as as a place to kind of implant the stories and then uh, then take them in your uh, invisible memory pocket um, next time you go to town. I gather also when a reader does that, they imagine and reflect on where they've been throughout the city. You insert yourself in certain different parts. For instance, when your brother spewed lime spider over a woman's <laughs> wife her coat in the Coles cafeteria. Yeah. That's right, yeah, and so you're exactly right. So it's a layered remembering and a layered history that everyone brings their own their own memories to of, you know, their big night out that went wrong or, or where they met, you know, their true love or, or, or where their first job was, whatever it was, even just, you know, where your favourite cafe used to be. You know, you have these little landmarks around the city and you read a book like mine and you layer it uh, or interleave, uh, interleave it with your own uh, memories and it just, it just makes the city such a rich place. At least that's how it works for me. Beautiful. Adrift in Melbourne, Seven Walks with Robin and Ia. It's out now via text publishing. And we've been speaking with the author, Robin. Thank you very much, Robin. <laughs> Thanks so much. Great to talk with you. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. I uh, purchased a chocolate sundae a couple of days ago. Oh. Uh, first time in a while. And i got to say, there is... There was nowhere near enough chocolate in this chocolate sundae. Did you request chocolate on the bottom, chocolate on the top? You know, this place didn't do that. Another place Get does. Out. I know, because the other place, I looked on the menu and I was like... <laughs> I wonder what that other oh. place could be. I know. I was like, can you, is it, is, can I get it on the bottom? Can I get the double chocolate? They're like, no, we don't do that here. I was like, oh. Could I just pay you $5 more to put chocolate on the bottom? Would that get you over the line? Oh, like, you know, I probably should have asked. Just anything. Yeah. But, yeah, no, they didn't do it. So the, the, the top quarter of the Sunday was delicious and then I've just got soft serve. It's Imagine just a waste. computer says no over syrup. Yeah. No. Oh, just give a little squirt for a person. Oh, you Sorry. five bucks. For Christ's sake, just give me a little bit of chocolate. Yeah. So... It was very disappointing. So you sounds like you didn't manage, uh, to, you didn't ration the chocolate. I didn't. Um, I took some of Abby's because she doesn't like the chocolate. She prefers the soft serve. So I'm Oh, just, I'm sorry. Like, Who a... has ever preferred the soft serve <laughs> ever? Maybe she's just being polite and gives the me a chocolate. The soft serve is just the vessel. It is. It absolutely is. Uh, so I took a little bit of hers, but I still had half an ice, half a cup of ice cream left. It you throw it out, mate. You got to marry Abby. Like that is the <laughs> fact that she donates her. Oh, I can't believe syrup. that. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, I went to this um, we, this frozen yogurt place, and they give you these big cups. Uh, and I thought, because it's just one size, and they give it to everyone, and then they have all of these toppings and so many options. So I was like, oh, all you can eat. So I have shoved everything in this bucket um and abby has just got a tiny little bit of whatever she wanted uh, and i'm like is that all you're getting she's like is that what you're getting it's like yeah i mean look how big the bucket is as if you wouldn't fill it she's like they weigh it i went oh <laughs> <laughs> it's not just all you can eat 28 dollars mine was <gasps> oh my god <laughs> and i couldn't take it back it was all in there she paid six dollars yeah. 28 dollars worth of toppings <laughs> Thought it was all you could eat. I just shoved yeah, it all I'd in. Like to it's not. This 
it's not Pizza Hut in 1995. I know. Oh, it's funny. Is- I um, a Mr. Whippy van was oh. crawling down our street yesterday. All oh, right. And Andrew and I were um, out walking with June and Ralph, but it kept just going dun 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 and then stopping and then going dun 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 dun. And I was like, is it is it following us down the street? <laughs> uh, which it felt like. But then it pulled over and little some kids came out, kids which was nice. Out. And I was wondering, uh, 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 we were. Like we were not allowed Mr. Whippy when we were kids. Oh right. Yeah, and I and I was really surprised to see that it was still a thing that you know children came running out of the houses for, and it was yeah. quite delightful. If I was oh, Mr. Whippy van driver. Would you? What would you do? Would you? I'd follow people like that all the time. <laughs> yeah, but would you go it? Because even first gear, uh, like in a automatic car, you would be going too fast. Mm. So yeah. would you park and play? and then move on and play, or would you travel at, like, a menacing half-rat pace? Well, he was doing menacing half-rat pace, and it's kind of terrifying. Yeah. But I wonder if that's what brings the children out, the yeah. menace. Oh, yeah, something bad could... Yeah, it's the danger. It's the danger. And the sweetness. <laughs> and the ice cream. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe you spent $28. I know. Oh, I know. I, yeah, I, I, once. I did it once, and it was just recently. And, did, yeah, did you keep the, lo- the, the toppings for age? Ages? The- you know what? I took them home because I I literally had five or six different types of ice creams in there. With oh, it was different, all ice uh, creams. Uh, uh, no, sorry. Um, like different flavored fro- frozen yogurt yeah. plus different toppings. So I had a chocolate and nut, and then like a, like a gelato flavored. So I had five different options. I did take it home, <laughs> put it in the freezer, and then I just thought out. Like it was never going to be the same. How but- big is this stupid bucket? And does the bucket? Why is the bucket stupid? <laughs> the bucket sounds oversized. If you could put twenty eight dollars worth of frozen yogurt in a bucket, yeah. the bucket's too big. Yeah, and, oh, it is. And it's, so, it's did Abby have the same size bucket? Yeah, they only have one size, so they get suckers like me. Oh. They have, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't have little ones. Because you, your eye bucket. just wants the bucket to be filled. Exactly. And what, how, how, like, one, maybe one in ten, do you reckon, fills the bucket and then goes, oh, well, that's how they make their money. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and, I mean, because it's just so tempting, all of the toppings. You get, like, I saw kids in there as well, and they just get excited. So you just put whatever you can in there. There's so many options. I don't get. Do you really get excited about all of them? I, I mean, mean, I did. But, but but don't you think that they'll uh, co coagulate or, oh. or they'll become um, one dis- amorphous and yeah. indecipherable? At the time, I wasn't thinking of anything. Obviously, you should do advertising for Froyo. <laughs> <laughs> Come and get your coagulated amorphous <laughs> toppings. Triple R. Today is International Day of Disabled Persons and perfect weather for the 2021 Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival, which takes place from 10 till 2 at Crown River Walk. And to tell us about it, Richard Amon, CEO of Disability Sport and Recreation, joins us now. Richard, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, Sarah. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, Can you tell us about the significance of this day globally? Oh, globally, it's massive because it's a number of causes have an international day that, that celebrates the, the cause and tries to advance you know, improvements in society around it. And, and this is a day for people with disabilities to celebrate many, many aspects of their lives. And sport and recreation is a critical aspect of people living, what we try and say, an ordinary life that should be belong to everyone to be able to easily access and to, to get involved in our community and, and to live their best lives possible. And are there any issues of an Australian flavour that uh, we're considering on this day? Um, I mean, we're Aussies. We, we love being active. We love playing sport with our mates. And we, we think that's something that belong, that right should belong to everybody. So today's a day of celebration where we're 
we're demonstrating what's possible. We've got 25 different exhibitors who'll be there from different sporting uh, organisations, different support services, demonstrating that people with disability can do amazing things. Um, and, and what we do, importantly, is we have the event at Cran Riverwalk. So it's a very public-facing venue. So a really important thing is community attitudes to with disabilities. So if people can see that people with disability have a legitimate right to get involved in a whole range of sporting activities, then we need to create a more welcoming environment in society for them. So that, that's a really critical aspect of today. Are sporting organisations getting better at being more inclusive with their sports? Oh, they are. Well, what we find is, is, is the general intent is there. Like people, we, we all, if someone asks someone, do you think we should have a fairer society? Well, most people will say yes. So most sports have that you know, as part of their core to provide you know, uh, activities and services to all of society. So what you do find is you do need resources to be able to be applied to this, and there are some, some different considerations at times about how these need to be modified to be able to accommodate and work with people with disabilities. So sometimes we found through COVID, as money has become less for sports, as less membership has come in and, and a certain number of events have been cancelled, there may be a risk of, of, of the specialist staff who work with disability might not be as funded as much as normal. So what we're finding is, is that we really need to, to maintain that momentum and to make sure that, uh, that sports have the, the, the resources, but also the skills and capabilities. We're developing training programs so that sports can learn more about how to work with people with disabilities so that then they can confidently go out and approach them and, and then put on services and programs that support them. Let's get down to brass tacks with the festival today. Uh, what's taking place, say, in the AFL zone? Okay, so we're going to have... The AFL is one of the key contributors to today's event, and there's going to be clinics from Collingwood Hawthorne and St Kilda. Um, and we've got a special guest, Joel Selwood, who's the uh, Disability Inclusion Ambassador for the AFL. He'll be coming down and running the session himself. So the AFL have got some what we would call modified activities of, of, of AFL. So you might not be aware that there's actually a blind version of AFL that, that's been developed, uh, where people with vision impairment can play a modified version of the game. And also uh, a very popular event is, is the wheelchair AFL. So we have actually have five AFL teams who play in a competition of wheelchair AFL and Collingwood won the premiership against Essendon just last Sunday. So there'll be some demonstrations for, for those activities and, and opportunities for people to get in there, hop in a wheelchair and, and give it a try and, and, and just see what it's like. And you can have a crack at wheelchair rugby? Wheelchair rugby is another big one. You might not be aware that... Our Victorian program contributed half of the Australian team that competed in the Paralympics just recently. So there'll be a wheelchair uh, rugby come and try activity where people can come get down um, and have a try of that sport. And, and even just come down and we've got three Paralympians who, who'll be there who people can come in and just talk to them about their experiences at the Paralympics and, and just find out more about disability sport. And I'm curious about table tennis as well uh, with, in that activity area today. Can you play? What's the deal? Well, like essentially, there's a table tennis table, and what, and what we demonstrate is table tennis, it's a really inclusive sport, and and a whole range of disability types are suited to, to playing table tennis. And, and, what, and what's the benefit of table tennis is you can you can do it side by side with, with um, someone who doesn't have a disability in, in a lot of instances. So it, it's a great example where we talk about people just finding a sport or recreation activity that they can do um, and, and do that in an inclusive environment that might be with other people who don't have disability. So we want all society to be able to come together and, and get fit and get active and, and help live their best lives.
What about resources and uh, locations, facilities? Uh, are they readily available across the state or are some of them concentrated? Um, well, I mean, the, the state, the Victorian government has done a you know, wonderful job in supporting different councils and, and, and facilities to, to develop facilities that are what we called um, um, inclusive design, so designed for all. So there's a principle now that applies to most government funding that makes sure that that they are inclusive as far as um, yeah, access of ramps and, and all those sorts of things that are really um, accessible. But what we find is, I mean, that's only one part of the puzzle. I mean, the important thing is that we need a welcoming environment for when people can arrive at a centre, that there will be um, a welcoming environment for them, but also appropriately modified programs and services. So there's an, a number of aspects of, of, the, of the system that need to be modified to ensure that people with disability can get active. And that's really important because the, the, the data shows it's about 40% less likely to be active. So that's a lot of people from the 1.1 million Victorians with a disability who, who are missing out on living, on living a, you know, a full and rich life that, that should be available to them. And in previous festivals, have you uh, received feedback about, you know, their life-changing discoveries if you head down? Oh, we have. What we do is we do a survey every year, um, uh, you know, a random survey of you know, about 100 or so participants of the of the uh, festival. And then we found out that over half of them have found a new activity that, that, that they've been gone on with to, to be able to get involved with. And, and, and having been in this, in this industry for, for six years, you know, I found that the stories of people who, who once they've found an activity to do and get involved in, in a sport or a recreational activity, it, it does have the opportunity of completely changing their life. There's a, a real sense of hope and purpose that can come, a real sense of developing friendships, skills that might lead to employment, so that their health improves. There's so many aspects of their life that improves by, by just having a go at sport. And, and, and what we put the message is that there's almost somewhat, something for anyone, no matter what your disability type is and um, what your circumstances are, you'll be able to find something that's suitable for you. And, and that's, that, that's the key message, that, that get out there, have a go. Um, that's the reason for the day. We, we try and have the day as a... Uh, an opportunity where people can have some choice. There's over 25 different sports and exhibitors that will be there. So ideally they'll be able to find something that's there. And if not something that's there on the day, then we'll be able to point them in the right direction to find something to help. All right. The Disability Sport and Recreation Festival takes place today, 10 till 2, at Crown Riverwalk. Yeah, there are dozens of exhibitors and a range of inclusive and modified sports. Everyone's invited. How do we check it out? Well, the, all the information you can find on our website, which is www.dsr.org.au. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for anyone to come down, even if you don't have a disability, just come down and, and have a look and, and see what the activity that, that's going on. And it might open your eyes a bit about what's possible. And, and, and that's a key aspect of one of the key barriers is community attitudes to, towards people with disability. So we're hoping that today really shines a light on what's positive about the life that people can live and sport and recreation is such a core part of Melbourne and Australia that everyone has a right to live the same life that the rest of us have. All right, Richard Amon, CEO of Disability Sport and Recreation. Have a good one today and thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah. And thanks to the City of Melbourne, Carbon Club, and the Victorian Government and the AFL for being great supporters for today's event. Triple R. Right into it's Vanessa Dolker joins us to talk the latest in tech. Hello, Vanessa. 
Good morning, everybody. It's uh, it's good to be here. How are we? Yeah, we're excellent and absolutely intrigued by what you're going to broach. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a massive problem for everybody. Um, I, I'm sure you heard that story um, over a month ago. Everyone was relating to that lost hiker who didn't answer unknown calls. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> didn't know that people thought they were lost. And we thought, yep, very relatable. <laughs> And I wondered how many of us are even answering the phone anymore. Do any of you even answer if it's not a recognised number? So every so often I do because I think, oh, that looks vaguely familiar. It must be, you know, a doctor ringing me back or as, you know, some important or a childcare or something. And then inevitably I answer and it's not, it's just spam. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I think, Sarah, you, you probably find you're more likely to answer if you recognise the local area code that yeah. the numbers are coming at you from. Yeah, so there's, um, we know that we're getting inundated with a range of irrelevant phone calls, but there are a few causes. So I thought we'd start with some definitions. Um, there's robocallers. So there are automated pre-recorded phone messages coming in randomly, you know, choosing numbers within a spectrum and targeting them. Then we've got spammers. And we know what spam is from the internet, from email usually we think of, but now we're getting text message spam and we're getting phone call spam. Um, and they, they often call indiscriminately, uh, but they sometimes include people that you've forgotten you've given consent to contact you, like when you get really excited at that wine cellar that you visit in <laughs> regional Victoria. Then there are scammers or fraud callers, so um, entities pretending to be someone that they're not with malicious intent, so pretending to be your bank or your ISP or someone else. Um, then there's a technique called caller ID spoofing. So um, using internet-based calling technology to make it look like a call or a text is coming from a real telephone number, often using a local area code to increase the likelihood of you answering. Mm. And finally, there's VoIP, which is voice over internet protocol technology. It's used by millions of uh, people globally to make phone calls free or cheap every year. It's part of the reason why this sort of technique of spamming people has proliferated because it's become affordable. And technologies that we use all the time, like WhatsApp and Zoom and Microsoft Teams, et cetera, all use that same protocol. That adds to the complexity of the problem. So since August this year, the ACCC has received over 16,000 reports of these scams affecting Android and iPhones. Um, global estimates put the number of robocalls in 2019, which is the best number I could find for global, at over 50 billion already. So I guess we, we ask why haven't the telecommunications um, industry been able to solve the problem? Well, in fairness, they have made some progress, but it is um, a classic wicked problem. They don't want to block legitimate calls and it's very easy for anyone legitimate to be using the VoIP protocol as much as um, for, as um, problematic actors. You can't presume that those problematic actors are only coming from overseas. Uh, plenty of them could be happening in your own country, so that doesn't help you block them. Uh, in February, Telstra had said that it was blocking about 6.5 million suspected scam calls a month, and that was after a really concerted effort. Before they had automated the process to block these things, they were only managing to catch about a million scams a month. By October this year, um, their cleaner pipes program was stopping 13 million scam calls a month. So while they are doing better at trying to work on the problem from the telecommunications side, uh, the scammers and the volume of the problem is also increasing. So it is a race to catch up. Are they, do you know if the telecommunications companies are talking to uh, law enforcement? 
Um, that's a really good question. It sounds like they are. There's lots of ways that they interact in terms of things like um, government bodies like Scamwatch and ACMA, um, the Australian Communication and Media Authority. It sounds like they are collaborating. But more importantly, they're collaborating with telecommunications companies globally. So uh, there is a protocol that people have um, suggested. The, internet, uh, the international standards body, the US-based Internet Engineering Task Force, have developed what they think could be part of a solution, and they've called it Stir and Shaken. And yes, it is inspired by James Bond. Uh, because, you know, as much as they have real world problems, they also think they're playing a computer game. I don't know. <laughs> but um, what they have proposed is that if we could use a new standard, telecommunications companies would be better able to identify and more quickly able to identify bad actors um, but it relies on um, your systems being based on end-to-end -end internet protocol networks. And where you've still got copper in your telecommunications system, this is a problem. So the US have mandated that mobile operators need to implement these protocols by the end of this year. They're ahead of the game. In the UK, they've said they need service upgrades before they can finish that, and they expect those upgrades to be completed by 2025. And, you know, who knows when they'll be compatible with this protocol. In Australia, it's ACMA who are releasing um, information about our um, ability to take this on. And they last reported on it that I could find in November 2019. So they've been aware that this problem is growing. Similarly for Australia, they've said um, it's important that, you know, networks are migrated off copper wire-based um, networks to the national broadband network for this to become a realistic option. Um, but then they recommend that we do take it. Now, one of the architects of the Stir Shaken framework describes its application to scam calls as it will be more like how we manage email spam now. It will give us um, the tools. It'll still be there, but it'll be more manageable and your tools will more um, comprehensively block them out before they get to you. So you just might get a few. So that's the big picture. Mm -hmm. We can take us down to the individual level, uh, which is how you individually can cope at this particular point in time where it's still problematic. So the first option is depend on your mobile operating system to protect you. So for Apple iPhones, you might want to turn on something called silence unknown callers. It's a very blunt instrument. Um, there's a very similar feature for Android phones. The issue is, as we start to open up, and we book restaurants and people are calling us back to confirm bookings and things. We're getting increasing calls from people who maybe we don't have saved in our contacts list. It feels like something that someone who refuses to discover new music would use. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so true. Uh, that's the ultimate triple R insult. <laughs> that's great. That's great. So then we go back to, all right, well, Android phones have some really um, advanced features in here. They've got one up on, on the iPhone OS in that they've already got built-in options for flagging suspected spam calls. And if they already think you're getting a suspected bad call on your Google Pixel, the entire screen will turn red when they ring you, just so you know, you can ignore this one, let this one go through. Uh, there is the hideously manual solution of blocking individual numbers one by one, which is what I do. It's like, I get a call, I don't answer it, I Google that number, I see if there's any bad reports. If there are, I block it. Um, 
And after a while, if I haven't, you know, heard from that number again and I don't need it for anything, they haven't left a message, I just block it anyway, even if there's no bad reports. Do you string them along, um, Vanessa? Do you do you talk to them and say, oh, hang on, I'm just getting a pen and waste their time and that sort of stuff? Look, while that can be very entertaining and um, <laughs> if you are desperate to generate content for your mildly amusing blog or podcast, you just put this thing you're doing. What a burn! Um, <laughs> what a burn! <laughs> recommended um that you even let people know that you're a live one on the end of the line right it's mm. like yeah don't let them register you as an actual human that they managed to contact mm-hmm. just hang up okay. yeah my Use friend's been advice. getting ones recently that where someone rings and goes you rang me i've got that yeah you I've rang been... me i just got a missed call from you what's your name you know and they try to kind of get you in like that um well and it really freaked her be... out because she's like oh well, maybe i did valid like someone might have legitimately spoofed her number in the random call ID spoofing that oh, they can do. Ah, okay. Which is I see. why it's a terrible idea to call back these numbers. Yeah. Can um, I? Another dr- reason yeah. it's terrible is because it can be an international number. Yeah. Oh, ah. Before you continue with remedies, I want to ask just about the United Australia Party. I haven't received one message, right? You need to write. There's right. a bit of a like, am I not pretty enough vibe? But, <laughs> but what what is it? possible how come some people are receiving them and i'm not what's what's an explanation as to how some people's numbers get out there well in that particular case i mean uh political parties have been excluded from some of their constraints around mass emailing uh, mass uh, texting people uh which i think is kind of problematic anyway uh, so really, you're just thinking about, well, what's their database look like, Daniel? And you've stayed under the radar, my friend. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> unlike me, who has signed up to every sale email out there. Right. You, so um... if you're, if a business asks you for your mobile number, are you and you get a text message down the line, totally unrelated, it, that seems unrelated. Is it possible that when you give out your mobile number to a business? someone's buying that data and you're getting a text. It's really possible. Um, but also there are laws against it. It's really illegal. Mm. So, yes. And well, that yes. explains why they're blocking 13 million scam calls a month. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's really yeah, illegal. That's right. <sighs> and also you've got to imagine these laws have taken time to catch up with the, with the practices. Yeah. So there were times when there were less tight laws about sharing that sort of data. Now they are very tight. But if the information's already out there, you know, it only takes one bad actor. The other thing is every time you hear about so-and-so was hacked and customer data was stolen, that customer data may well have been your phone number. Right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so we're back on track, uh, blocking things one by one like whack-a-mole. That's right. Yeah, it's not great. Um, The other thing is you can trust in your mobile service provider to protect you. As we've said, you know, a lot has been blocked on that side. But as we know as real-life consumers, gosh, that's not improving our experience a lot at the moment. Finally, there are third-party apps. Now, look, there are a number of apps that claim to prevent robocalls from ever ringing your phone. Most of them work on a monthly or annual subscription basis, so there's, there's cash in it for them. Most of them rely on updating lists of all sorts of problematic callers. So they've got a database and they're adding to it really rapidly. Now, while they allow you to also maintain your own personal blacklist of numbers that might be bothering you and whitelist those you want to get through, nothing is stopping you from doing that already. That's free. So really it's just like, oh, do you want the extra database of blocking or are you just going to get some good practices where you don't answer unless they leave a meaningful message that, you know, makes sense to you? Is it really useful? 
most of them have free trials, so you could see if they're for you. Mm. There's ones like RoboKiller and Haya and Nomo Robo that you can look into, but I think it's overkill. Like how many phone calls are you getting that you would need that? That's just something to think about. I think more importantly is the basic info of how you can protect yourself while the technology catches up, which is that if you receive a suspected scam call, you should hang up. You can check if their story is real by calling the actual organisation if you're if they've left a message and you're really concerned about it, but don't call back any number that they leave. Never give out any personal or financial information. Contact your telecommunications service if you need help. And report, report, report scams to ACCC Scam Watch. Um, but yeah, be safe out there, people. Can and, I just um, ask... Mm. Vanessa, sorry, like you talk about blocking the individual numbers. With text messages, is there any way to stop them? you just got to – there's nothing you can do because uh, I'm getting so right now, many of them. Yeah, yeah right now um, you, can, you can block that number the same way you block the text message number. But, yeah, there's, there's only so much you can do. They keep changing their numbers. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it is a problem. Mm. Yeah. All right, Vanessa, thank you. Never call again. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Only, only Skype for us, baby. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Moody foodie Michael Harden's here for a food interlude. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, excellent. Moody foodie. That sounds about right. Look out. What's going on apart from uh, you helping reinvigorate the city? Uh, well, you know, it's just sort of it, eating my way through around the place just for the, you know, for the good of good of society. <laughs> well, as always, it's always, you know, for the I'm always out for the other. That's why I'm, you know, the weight that I am. <laughs> um, Is this your favourite time of the year before we kick off? Because uh, Christmas, everyone's out eating. It's just, it's all food. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. And I kind of like, I like the, you know, the forward planning with, you know, sort of working out what you're going to eat over the season, whether it's sort of like, you know, getting together over, you know, New Year or whatever, or Christmas or anything. It's sort of like the planning is good. The, the, the forward cooking is good. I'm, I'm, I'm quite into the idea that food becomes central to everything. Mm, forward cooking, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, think ahead, folks. You should all. I'm no doubt you've all or you've all cooked your puddings by now. Yeah, oh yeah, in June. Yeah, got all those done and in the cupboards, but just just sort of festering, ready for the ready for the day. That's right. All our coins are gone. <laughs> so hummus. This is what we're on. Yes. I didn't know how to get from Christmas to hummus. It was my fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, we just yeah. I just kind of um, have uh, had a couple of really good examples of hummus recently and uh you know sort of seeing it on the on the radar a bit there's 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 some quite good ones hanging around melbourne always have been but um it's one of those i love the thing i love about hummus is it's one of those dishes that you know with very few ingredients but with huge amounts of arguments around them about oh. you know who, who makes it best who made it first what you put in what you don't put in like it's sort of like it's one of those ones it's from the like you know 
around the area of the eastern Mediterranean, the sort of Levant. So you're kind of talking, it's, you know, there, there's examples in Israel, in Palestine, you know, the Egyptians have got one, the Greeks, the Syrians, the Turks, it's all, so there's all always a, an argument about whose it is. But, you know, the, they've been cultivating chickpeas in uh, Turkey for 10,000 years. So, you know, it's kind of like it's been a fair bit of time to uh, embed those arguments. But um, it's always the, the kind of one of the main arguments that happened was in 2008, there was actually a, like a, basically a hummus war between Lebanon and Israel. And the Lebanese got pissed off with the Israelis for sort of claiming um, hummus as, a, as their dish. And they actually went through copyright laws into the EU to try and uh, get copyright infringement over, over the Israelis, which was sort of tossed out. But then there was a war between the two of them about who could make the biggest batch of hummus. So there were these the enormous you know, tons of hummus being made in this sort of rivalry between two countries about whose it was. But, uh, you know, I think the things that everybody can really, um, you know, that you can rely on that is that is an extremely delicious dish mm. when done properly. So there's a there's a fair bit of um, fair bit of you know chicanery with some of these uh, supermarket versions. Well, of it. But, when you say done properly, because I love a bucket of hummus, and yeah. is that Bucket. a disgrace? We yes. get buckets, in, uh, but you can buy good buckets of hummus. And yeah, yeah. Well, that's yet. the thing. It's sort of like it's <laughs> it is a product that um, does you know work well on by, on scale. You know, it doesn't yeah. but. I reckon everybody that loves hummus should try at least once making their own. Okay. And you need to make it from scratch. Like you don't want to be, there's not, none of this canned chickpea business. You oh. Know, it's like if you, you know, none of that laziness. It's sort of like, you know, you, unless you, you know, unless you're not really proud of yourself. Feels <laughs> <laughs> like. But, uh, but with, uh, yeah, so with, and it's not that difficult to do to get dried chickpeas. And, you know, you just basically all you have to do is plan a little ahead and soak them overnight. And they just suck a much better flavour. You get sort of a, a much nuttier flavour. You get a better texture. And, um, yeah, and so basically you're just soaking them overnight and then, like, you wash them first and then you drain them, wash them again, and then you soak them in fresh water overnight and then you cook them up with a little bit of bicarb soda. It's really um, important to put the bicarb in because it just adds uh, some something about, I don't know what the, the actual chemical reaction is, but it makes the texture fluffier and smoother. And, um, and then you kind of cook them for 20 minutes. And when you're mashing them, you can use a food processor that's perfectly acceptable. If you want to be completely traditional, you do it in a mortar and pestle. But, you know, sort of a lot of the newer hummuses that we eat now that we're used to now are very smooth, so they are done either with a machine and um but the thing to remember is to when you're when you're mashing whichever way you're mashing your chickpeas um is that you want to do them warm because uh it's another thing with texture and flavor it's sort of like it, it gives you a better texture if they're done warm and then you kind of there's the, the only things to add after that are you're looking at tahini and lemon juice and garlic some people say salt um, but you know that that could get you into an argument, and you don't, nobody wants to get into a fist fight over hummus. So, um, I mean, frankly, Mike, it sounds like you do. Cause... Yeah, yeah, I do actually. It's sort of like I am very judgy when it comes to hummus. So you know, it's like well, when it comes to a lot of things, really. But, Is cooking uh, chickpeas hard? No. 
Okay. No, it's, it's like, I think this is a thing, like, you know, and don't get me wrong, like, you know, canned chickpeas, I don't hate them across the board. You know, they're sort of like, there are uses, like if you're making, you know, an Indian curry or some kind of Middle Eastern stew, then then chickpeas out of a can are uh, fantastic. You know, you don't, but, you know, when you're relying on, you know, it's sort of like, there's not a lot of places to hide in hummus. And um, and so I think that, like, you know, why not make the ingredient the best that you can get it? And it's sort of like, which is also comes down to your tahini as well. Like, you know, you can, you know, you can make your own tahini. It's actually not that hard. It's sort of like just hulled sesame seeds that you want to toast first and then uh, mix them with a bit of oil and salt. So, but there's some really good tahinis around, particularly and if you can get your hands on some Lebanese tahini, all the better. Um, that sort of seems to be, it's one of those things, it's like, you know, Italian tomatoes or whatever. It's just kind of, there's something about the mm-hmm. air and the soil that seem to do things with sesame seeds there. Where would we go for inspiration in a restaurant sense for hummus, do you think? There's the ones that are sort of around at the moment that are, that are really good. Like there was the, the one that kind of sort of has set off this current hummus trend is a guy called Tom Safri and he's a chef and he was at Bar Saracen. He's cooked all around, but he, he had a dish at Bar Saracen, which was in the city, which was this amazing hummus that he would top with things like um, crab meat or prawns or salmon roe and that sort of stuff. And he, his hummus is now, um, he's selling it in jars and uh, you can get it like online or in places like Meatsmith and um, there's a place in Northcote called All Are Welcome that, that stock it. And he does, um, his hummus is delicious, but his secret ingredient that I, I've just recently discovered is that he doesn't use raw garlic. A lot of places will use sort of raw garlic to mix it in. He uses a, a, a Lebanese um, sort of a garlic paste called tum which is another thing that is absolutely delicious. So tum is sort of basically just another one. It's got it's garlic, oil, lemon juice, and salt. And so he reckons that it's um, less harsh than the garlic, though But some people do like that sort of hotter garlic taste mm. with the hummus, but the tum is delicious. And his consistency is particularly great. It's sort of like it's very smooth um, and very fluffy. So, you know, that's that's the other, like, like um, texture is one of the things that people, uh, you know, can dispute on hummus or, or kind of work out which ones they like the better because you can go super smooth, but there's also, there's schools of thought where they like their, it is, it is a bit chunky yeah. as well. Oh, you're killing me here. <laughs> I know. I want chunky hummus for breakfast. Yeah. And yeah, so you... Oh, no, well, they do. Like, there's, there's places in Israel there that, that only, they're called hummusia, and they only they specialize in hummus oh. so they're just little stores and they're sort of like otolenghi sort of talks about them being like the equivalent of a british fish and chip shop you oh, know wow. that people go there and there's you know the ones that they say that are best and everything they're sort of small and they open from the morning through till sort of late afternoon and you can have like hummus for breakfast so it'll be slightly warmed and they'll they'll serve it with things like shakshuka which is the sort of the baked egg dish with tomatoes mm. And, um, you know, that sort of stuff, it's like, it's such a delicious breakfast, but, you know, it's kind of, you can also just serve your hummus up with a bit of oil and some cumin and, you know, it's good to have, they, it's also good with some fava beans on the top or um, always, I, I love it, always with a really good um, drizzle of really good extra virgin olive oil as well when you're serving it. I love that. So once you've um, peeled back the foil, if you lose the plastic lid, can you just glad wrap the top and put a rubber band around or...? 
I'm not speaking to you. <laughs> I feel so seen. I feel so seen. Thanks very much, Mike. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. About my older brother who lives in Austin, he moved there a few months ago now. Uh, and one of the things that he's had to relearn to do is to uh, make friends. He's 42 and he's lived in Melbourne his whole life. Uh, so you've, uh, you know, you've had your friends through uh, school or sports or, or DJing and, and all that kind of stuff. And he said he was messaging me and just saying for the first time he has to relearn what to do and. Mm. And, and yeah, you have to start from scratch, and no one knows anything about you, and all that kind of stuff. He, his wife is is really good at it. She's she's a very personable person, uh, and she's like jumped on the school parent council, and she's you know wanting to go out and, and meet new people. And uh, they've got four kids, three of whom are at school as well. So she's meeting a lot of the parents and making an effort to go and and you know catch up with them as well. So so she's in, enjoying the whole thing at the moment. But he said he's actually struggling a little bit like he knows people through work and he's made a lot of work connections um but yeah because he hasn't had to do it in so long he's yeah really aren't texans like notoriously open like less friendly wanted, less yeah. wanted abortion but <laughs> they're real heaps friendly yes yes and they have found that that they have been quite friendly um i think some of the ways that they've met friends have had uh like social media uh, pages where there's like Aussies living in Austin or whatnot or, mm. or, or through schools and, and he's got some business connections and stuff that they've got like activities going kayaking on the weekend and things. He's like, he just has to make an effort and he hasn't made this effort to make friends in a is very it, long time. Is it just because it's also like who could be bothered? Oh, totally. And, and, and like are they going to be there for a long time? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, oh. Yeah, they'll be there for at least a couple of years. Okay, so, oh, you've yeah. got to sort that out because I feel like you're only mm. temporarily somewhere – I don't want to commit to humans. <laughs> yeah. It's too much Yeah, at this point in my life. And do you think the whole time you're in a new country, you're kind of going, uh, you're just a temp, you're a fill-in friend. A fill-in friend. And maybe the, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you definitely get that. Like I've lived in a couple of different countries. I, I lived in Fiji for a few months. Um, it was supposed to be 12 months, but it was cut short to three months. But one of, that was 15 years ago. And Everyone's I'm, thinking, I wonder what Bobby did wrong. <laughs> oh, in Fiji? Yeah, you don't have to go into it, but it was like... Gee. Mm. Yeah, she got sent home. <laughs> I did, actually. Yeah. <laughs> there was a military coup, so everyone, oh, right. everyone got sent home. Uh, anyway, uh, but I'm still friends. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry, I'm raised. <laughs> um, but I'm still friends with someone that I met there. We only knew each other for three months, but we just connected. But then there's a lot of people who you're friends with. Like, I was in Samoa for a couple of years. Didn't get kicked out of that one. Um, but really good friends with people there who I thought I would be friends with for life. But then you come back home and... I mean, both live in Victoria, and sometimes those connections just don't last in a different country, mm. in a different culture sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. What about if you're in a new place and someone gloms onto you and you're like, oh, this is I nice. I had that happen when I moved to Sydney. <laughs> oh, someone, yeah? Yeah, someone glommed onto me bad. And oh, I don't Andrew. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, Andrew. <laughs> and I just can't shake it. No, but he did. He just glommed. He used to turn up at my house with like a six-pack of beers and be like, hey. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, so who invites themselves over? Yeah. And because I was new in town and I'd been trying to make friends mm. and I had been going to things like just going to gigs by myself, like where you kind of vaguely knew faces and then maybe I was the glommer then. Mm. Um, and that's how I kind of met people. Yeah. Uh, and he was in that space. And early on I was maybe a little bit more open to people that were a bit more draining because you're just hoping for friends. Yeah. And he was an early 
Now I sound like a bad person. No, 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 no. Okay. And then he was an early an early friend, right? Yeah. And then I kind of established genuine friendships with people that I was like, I'm not just desperate for company. Now yeah. I really want to spend yeah. time with you. But he just stuck like a... Yeah. Right. And that's why, because I'm Fine. like, well, why am I, why do you like this fresh meat? Uh, you know, I'm fresh meat and uh, you've, you're glomming yeah. on. Where's your other meat? Yeah, where's your other meat? Did meat... You, the meat's left you. Did you eat the meat? Yeah, you ate the meat and now it's gone. <laughs> yeah. And I'm the fresh meat, and so the meat what? Rotten. Well, yeah, the meat's rotten for them. And so, like, what? What do they know that I don't yet? Anyway, thanks for the six pack. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was yeah. Thanks for the six pack. You know, once he turned up and he goes, he just turned up at the six pack. It happened a lot, and mm. knocked on my door and was like, "Hey." But this is a problem. We didn't have much to say about anything. Just didn't. Just wasn't. Had nothing. And you know, when you realise that someone doesn't have much to say, mm. I thought, "Oh my god, I'm going to have to spend an hour making conversation uh, with myself." Oh. Training. But then Andrew turned up, at, oh. who was also my friend at the time, and Andrew was like, "Oh, I could see on his face he's like the gloms here." <laughs> and then I, and then the, and then the, then the three of us sat there having this like, "Oh God!" Like the glom not saying much, <laughs> Andrew being annoyed at the glom, me thinking this is what my life has come to. Anyway, soon enough you talk about spike proteins yeah. and ferrets. <laughs> Triple R. Energetic screen fiend Hayley Inch is here to talk cinema. Morning, Hayley. Morning, everyone. How are we going? Yeah, fab. Uh, what's the deal? What are you bringing in? Uh, I'm bringing in something a little bit rare for me in that uh, this is essentially a superhero movie, which I can't remember the last time I actually spoke about one of those because it, it's kind of become a genre that's become so cemented and so just overwhelming as we, you know, acknowledge the Marvel juggernaut where if you haven't seen it, you know, all of the 30 previous films in the series, good luck with what's going on. I think I remember the time, Hayley, when you were slagging off a... Marvel and uh, out in the green room waiting as our next guest was a Marvel producer. <laughs> Whoopsie doodle. <laughs> Whoopsie doodle. <laughs> that sounds like me. Proudly independent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, to, to the very end, I'm a character of myself. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we are talking about a superhero movie today because it's one of the few superhero franchises not owned by the Marvel slash Disney conglomeration. Um, And it is Venom, Let There Be Carnage, which is the sequel to the first Venom film from a couple of years ago. And this is all part of the greater Spider-Man's universe. Cool. So um, it's not like Spider-Man 10 then? It's a whole other new thing? It's a whole other thing. It's its whole other box and dice, which I think is what contributes to making it feel very refreshing. And the fact that it's, yeah, definitely not really in conversation with superhero movies as we know them now. It's much more indebted, I think, to films such as Tim Burton's Batman films, Ah. where they're kind of these, yeah, very self-contained stories within the films themselves and is much more interested in exploring character development. Gosh, oh, my God, character development in a mainstream blockbuster. Who could have thought? Um, 
and letting their actors have a lot, a lot of fun with these comic book characters. It's funny you say that because you look at the um like the, the the poster for this and you got these two I mean it looks like a very classic comic book drama movie that would get you in for the action and it has these two characters that look like the alien from mm. a bit like the alien from Alien and uh, with these <laughs> long intense Gene Simmonsy tongues and fangs uh so it doesn't it like looking at it, it doesn't aesthetically shout like this is character development film it doesn't, doesn't. It's kind of funnily cloaked uh, in a way. And look, if you are looking for a, a really good comic book actioner, this will actually, it will absolutely deliver that. There's lots of great fun fight scenes and those kind of action set pieces that we kind of expect. But it's actually, it's far more of like, uh, as the director, uh, Andy Circus says, it's a... It's an odd couple movie. It's about two characters trying to find ways to get along with each other and finding ways in order to have a sustainable relationship. And it's just that the two characters are a journalist and the alien that inhabits his body. Um, Forgive my ignorance, but how many, how prolific a director is Gollum? director is gold he's actually he's he's got some pretty good shakes so he did the most recent uh king kong film and you know he's he's definitely building up his 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 director's uh slate as it were and the material of venom let there be carnage is very suitable to circus's uh experience and expertise not only being a movie uh about you know Two, two people being trapped in the one body, which obviously Circus, you know, he's he's done that before. Mm. He's he's an expert in that. But also the fact that it relies so much on motion capture because you're dealing with these alien creatures who have bodies that can basically do anything that they like. And so Circus was really interested in, yeah, really defining the physicality of these characters. He's very inspired by the the title references Carnage, which is another alien symbiote that is created out of venom and winds up infecting the body of a serial killer, Cletus Cassidy, played with great relish and much scenery chewing by Woody Harrelson. Um, Cletus. Who uh, moves very differently to Venom has very different physicality and Circus actually got in like a bunch of like dancers and gymnasts and very like physical artistic performers in order to yeah capture their movements and just and juxtapose them against Venom who he kind of describes as much more of like a heavy set kind of like rugby player that's let loose in a city sort of vibe. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's a really fun visual film, which I think given like so many of these like very CGI heavy comic book actioners, they kind of all feel the same. They kind of all have this very similar aesthetic. Um, and you can, but you can actually see here that Circus is really attempting to play with the form and do something really fun and interesting with it. Um, and but yeah, at, at at the end of the day, like these Venom films are centered around the lead actor, which is Tom Hardy, who plays both Eddie Brock, 
the journalist infected by venom and venom itself. Uh, I feel like Tom Hardy doesn't sign up to a movie these days unless he's like, can I do a funny voice? And you're like, yes, <laughs> you can do the funny voice. Here's a million dollars. Go wild. And... Um, there's a real fun sense of improvisation and and humour. So many of the jokes in this film just land one after the other, which is another thing that I really don't expect from Hollywood blockbusters anymore. Um, but apparently what Hardy did was he recorded all of his lines as Venom first and then he would play the actual, like, physical scenes with Eddie Brock and kind of, yeah, riff on and improvise and and try and expand out all, all of their interactions. So you do get this really, yeah, it's a very fun odd couple vibe where one guy's just trying to live his life and the alien that exists in him is trying to like you know eat bad guys heads <laughs> and he has to spend all his time making sure that yeah venom's not going around mercilessly killing people and instead should be eating chickens instead which is difficult when venom then makes friends with the chickens that then keep living in their apartment um it's a very yeah it's a very offbeat strange film in a lot of ways but I'm very in this kind of like landscape where all superhero movies sound the same you need to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the form to understand whatever the hell is going on you can walk into Venom with no understanding of Spider-Man or the comics or anything like that and I feel you will still have a fun time right. you will know what's going on and it's 97 minutes. Thank you. Boom. I love it. <laughs> um, I might be late to the party here, but Tom Hardy's worth your price of admission sometimes. Oh, hell yeah. Like, even when he's in something where you're like, wow, this movie is out of control and who knows what the hell is going on, he's doing something interesting. Yeah. And that's why I think it's very fun that this is the particular comic character that he's settled into playing because it is the most some of the most weird stuff happening in in both both comics themselves and comic book films like this is essentially like this is a love story between a man and an alien and them working out all of their problems via fighting things across San Francisco and they just have, yeah, they just have this weird, fantastic vibe to them. And I'm going to be very upset when they eventually attempt to suture it into the giant, you know, Spider-Man uh, juggernaut that is coming, that is Spider-Man No Way Home, which is basically, you know, Marvel going, oh, let's just cram every single friggin' Spider-Man IP into one movie because that's all we do anymore. We just cram more and more characters into films and everyone gets a point in the screen and go, oh, it's that guy, and that's a movie these days. Well, so, in the meantime, though, you liked Venom. Venom. <laughs> may, may Venom be its own thing for as long as possible before, you know, the rapacious more of Disney gobbles it up as is inevitable. But enjoy this one. All it's right. Fun. Venom, Let There Be Carnage with Tom Hardy using a funny voice directed by Andy Serkis. It's got a wide release. It does indeed. You know it. Thanks, Hayley. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. 
feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>